If you've ever been in a European city when temperatures go into minus territory, or on a ski holiday or something, you'll know what I mean when I say having heating in Europe is no joke, even before the Ukraine war. Well, after those crippling sanctions on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine, Europe is looking for new gas suppliers. And yes, you guessed it, here's where the Middle East might come in handy. Hello everyone, I'm Sami Zaydan. Welcome to the Essential Middle East podcast. Our guest is going to help us understand the complications and the geopolitical risks in the new energy supplies and deals. Good morning, Sami. Thanks for having me. My name is Henning Glostein. I'm Director for Energy, Climate and Resources at Eurasia Group, and I am joining you today from London. Wonderful. Good to have you with us, Henning. So let's start with the basic question it all boils down to. Can Russian gas be replaced? Well, so the short answer to that is yes, but not tomorrow. Yeah, I was going to say, I bet it depends on how soon we're talking, right? Exactly. That's the famous and the important caveat here. So if you're talking by sort of 2025, yes, this is entirely possible. It'll be very expensive and it'll buy a lot of effort. And that is what they're planning. That's what the Germans are planning, the Italians and everyone else in the EU. If you are talking about replacing all the gas this year because of EU sanctions or because President Putin of Russia decides he wants to punish Europe for other sanctions and cut off the gas tax, things will get really problematic this year and we might be talking energy rationing at home and parts of Europe. How problematic when you say, are people going to go without heating? Yeah, I mean, it's serious. The German government enacted the first stage of its emergency plan for energy supply, which is just monitoring things. But the third stage, and that's a maximum stage, would involve some form of rationing. They would probably cut demand of some non-essential industries. But the term non-essential industries, of course, is wishy-washy. If you're that industry, you think you're essential. And if you have a job at that industry, that's your life. So factories have to shut down. Wow. Rationing after World War II, again in Europe. Exactly. Nobody my age, so I'm in my mid-40s, has experienced that. It's an entirely new situation. It would cause a recession. And you might see some household rationing as well in winter. And of course, when people freeze in winter, that means some people will die. And that's a really hard sell politically. And that is why sanctions on gas are so complicated. And sort of many countries in Europe are reluctant to introduce them at this stage. That is hard. All right, how far can Middle Eastern countries like Qatar and Algeria actually go to end Europe's reliance on Russian gas? They can do a fair bit. There's an Italian delegation visiting Algeria to see whether they can export more gas to southern Europe. The problem for Algeria is they can't just flick a switch and exports jump out and start going to Europe at a bigger volume. Right, and there's also contract issues, isn't there? Like you're kind of locked in in terms of all your production for a while. Sure, there is that, but you can probably maximize your production a little bit, go a little bit above normal production rates and then sell that in the spot market. Actually also make a fair bit of money on that as well. But the Qataris, of course, can do a fair bit. There's a vast production expansion ongoing now anyway in Qatar. The problem is, of course, again, that's not going to be available this year. That's towards the middle of this decade, isn't it? And so, again, we've got the problem long term. Qatar can do a lot to help. Short term, a little bit less. And we know Qatar and Germany have been in talks. What's been cooking there, Henning? Yeah, so the Germans have suddenly realized that they really need LNG imports fast. So they need this from people or from countries that have spare LNG to sell. And there are basically two, Qatar and the United States. And that is why the German diplomatic mission popped up in Qatar the other day. And that is why the United States declared Qatar a major non-NATO ally 
this Qatari and US LNG will be the key strategic LNG supply to Germany once Germany has built its LNG import terminals. There's very little doubt about it. And then it'll be topped up by Norwegian oil and gas pipelines from the north. But that will be the strategic foundation for German LNG ports. That's really interesting because also the Americans have been talking to Middle Eastern countries like Qatar about what it can do to help fill the Russian void, right? So there's a little bit of geopolitical alliances, uh, I don't know, strengthening here between the US and countries like Qatar? Absolutely. That's this term again that's popping up there. So supply chain diplomacy. Let's build new supply chains between countries that are strategic allies and partners. And here, the US, Qatar, and Europe are really popping up. That's the new alliance being built here. And it's all connected here because, of course, Qatar is not an OPEC member and the US relationship with OPEC have recently not gone very well. So this is a whole new game of geopolitical supply chains being built up here. If Russia is sitting on the sidelines watching Middle Eastern countries filling its market share, might be a little bit antagonized by that? Of course. Russia doesn't like the idea that its biggest customer, which the EU is, the EU is the, by far the biggest buyer of Russian gas, oil and coal. So will there be blowback for some Middle Eastern countries? Probably, yes. It's likely that ongoing negotiations between the US and Western powers and Iran to find an end to US oil sanctions in Iran are being undermined by Russia in some ways. Russia could, in the oil sector, give up its unofficial deal that it has with OPEC to control and manage your oil supplies, which is that fear is the reason why Saudi Arabia and the Emirates haven't really come out and criticized Russia very much over its invasion of Ukraine. So yes, I mean, Russia does play a strong role militarily in the Middle East as well, and they won't like what they're seeing, and they don't like losing their biggest customer because it's the majority of Russian revenue. Which other MENA countries then maybe could step in and help out, especially in the short term that you mentioned? In Europe's proximity, Norway can probably squeeze out a little bit more as well. At some point, maybe if you could get some East Mediterranean gas by Egypt to Europe as well, but also that's not easy. That's also politically not entirely easy as well. But it's really complicated. I heard this, and I don't know if it's true. If you add up all the countries that could potentially, in the short term, fill the Russian void, if we can call it that, it doesn't even come to like something more than a third of what Russia is currently supplying to Europe. Is that right? I haven't looked at those things in that details, but yeah, I mean, it's probably getting up there because Russia currently supplies 155 billion cubic meters to the EU prior to this crisis. The EU has said they want to import additional 50 BCM this year of LNG to replace Russian LNG, and that's about a third. And those 50 BCM are a real challenge. We think 30 to 40 are possible. 50, if the entire LNG industry around the world works without a fault this year, it might happen. There's a few other factors you need to think about, right? Yeah, so a lot of LNG contracts are long-term contracts. Let's say you're a buyer of LNG over a 25-year contract. Some of them say that you're not allowed to resell any LNG cargoes to third parties. This is really awkward right now. So there are some importers of LNG around the world who say, well, you know, some of the long-term contracts that they have are a little bit over and above what they need at the moment. So they could sell some of that back to Europe if necessary. In some contracts, that's not allowed. And so that's awkward with that because most of the world's LNG is currently under such long-term contracts. So you need to rewrite some of them, you need to build new contracts, and then any new contracts the Europeans want to sign, they don't want to sign anything beyond 15 years because of their climate targets. They want very tight environmental standards into those LNG contracts, which some producers can live with, including for that matter Qatar, but others, they don't have the methods to provide all the transparency and all the necessities 
and only commit to 10 to 15 years in the contract what the Europeans want. So it's really not that as easy as it might seem to just send a ship from A to B. The paperwork involved is vast, and that's because the money involved is also vast. Are there also issues in terms of whether you're able to send it by pipeline versus whether you want to send it by ships and whether countries like Germany have the infrastructure or ability to receive different methods of delivery? Yeah, good point. So Germany is in an extra awkward position right now because, of course, they built all this pipeline network with Russia. In fact, the famous Nord Stream 2 pipeline that goes from Russia to Germany directly via the Baltic Sea finished last year, never got approved. And then German Chancellor Scholz ditched it after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That means that a vast pipeline that was going to supply a lot of gas to Germany is now not available. Does that mean that the whole pipeline is just now cancelled? Is it a complete waste or are they going to use it for something else? It's probably a complete waste, but they haven't taken the hammer to it yet, so they're not dismantling at this stage. I mean, talk about a white elephant or a stranded asset, but it's actually drowned. There's a lot of money was put into that as well as work. I think about $15 billion, yes. Ouch! And a lot of supply contracts are not there for German industry now. And this is, you know, they, uh, the Germans now are saying, like, wow, we can import LNG. The problem is Germany doesn't have a regasification terminal. It doesn't have an LNG import terminal. They have to build those. That'll, again, cost a couple of billion euros. How long does that take? There's fast ones, so you can do floating import terminals. That's basically just modifying an existing tanker. Quite fast. You can probably have one or two of those ready by the end of this year. But you need the tankers. And if everyone's going to need more LNG in the world, especially the Europeans, those famous 50 BCM that I mentioned, that needs more tankers. So there's going to be a shortage of LNG tankers this year. The bigger terminals that Germans are talking about, they'll take three to four years to build at best. Germany is really good at delaying things and slowing projects down. I've got to ask you then, given the history, I think that's a polite word we can use, between Western Europe and Russia, why did Europe get into a reliance situation with Russian gas in the first place? There is, for all the criticism now, there was a strong argument for it. In fact, Western German natural gas imports from the Soviet Union, so both countries that don't exist in this form anymore, started at the peak of the Cold War. They started planning this in the 60s and it started flowing in the 70s. So the idea here was Ostpolitik, the Germans called it. The Austrians and Italians joined in on that. And Vandal durch Handel, change through trade. If you connect A and B with a pipeline, you can't just sell to other people. It forces you to cooperate, even if you are political, maybe not enemies, but not at best friends. That was the idea, and it worked pretty well for 40 years. It also supplied affordable gas to Germany's economy, for sure. But now, of course, it's all in shambles. And there have been warnings about this over-reliance on Russia, and the Americans, the French, and especially Poland, has been warning of this over-reliance for many years. So the Germans and Austrians and Italians really can't say that they didn't see this one coming, because they were warned. Even if it did work for many decades, but it doesn't work now, and that's the reality we're sitting with now, and it's really uncomfortable. Have all sides kind of used it as well for like geopolitical leverage? For sure. The Americans, of course, they, they like the idea of selling more gas. They also have a lot of spare LNG to send to Europe and they, you know, they can call it, as Donald Trump used to call it, freedom gas. And anyone else who has excess gas to sell now thinks this isn't just a good political opportunity, it's a vast commercial opportunity. Sell your gas to a strategic ally. Qatar was just declared a major non-NATO ally by the United States government. That is politically very convenient and it's commercially really strong for Qatar because it'll mean lots of LNG exports to Europe in the next couple of years. So yes, I mean, energy politics is also geopolitics. I mean, the oil industry is very famous for that and it applies to LNG now more than ever as well. Realistically speaking, how long is it going to take for the EU 
to replace Russian gas supplies? My feeling is 2025. So the Germans have said they want to manage it by 2024. I think it'll take a year longer than they think. But I do think the effort to wean the EU and its most reliant economies, especially Germany, entirely off Russia is sincere and it is severe. The amount of money involved and spent on this now is eye-watering. So it's going to happen. So I think 2025, it'll be completed, which means, of course, the time between now and 2025 will be painful, especially this year and next year. And we have severe risk of supply disruptions. And is there any chance that this might change if things get better politically in terms of political relationships? Never say never. If Russia suddenly become more victorious, things could happen. And something sneaky is going on as well. Russian gas exports to the EU have actually increased by a third since the start of the year. And this is really awkward. Oh, interesting. In fact, even the gas through Ukraine to Europe has continued to flow. We thought it would get disrupted. Either the pipeline gets blown up or because Russia doesn't pay the Ukrainian government the transit fee, which it has to pay. We are quite certain they actually paid the fee in March, which is weird. It's a bizarre world we live in sometimes, isn't it? It's crazy. I mean, you're paying the country that you're invading for transiting gas. So there might be a little policy involved here that Russians see all these LNG deals being made. And the only way they could undermine that is by raising gas supply to Europe so fast that now during the low demand summer season, prices slump so that LNG, especially from the US, can't make it to Europe commercially. If you do that, you undermine it commercially. And then maybe some economies in Europe say, oh, well, look, it's not that bad. Maybe not sanction Russian gas. And I mean, politically, that's probably how you could undermine. Try and undermine alternative suppliers from coming on. Absolutely. Interesting, interesting. Well, that segues nicely into my next question. Where is the US in all of this? They announced they're going to try and increase their gas supplies to Europe. Is it going to happen and how fast? The US actually has a lot of gas that they could send. Again, not immediately, but fairly fast. There's a fair few export projects in the US that are vying for to start up. Some of the existing facilities could probably expand their production a little bit. Some of their production, because it's all shale, is what's called short cycle. So it's actually really well suited for signing a deal of only 10 to 15 years because the production doesn't last for much longer. So the US and Qatar are probably the two best suited to help bridge this or replace this Russian gas. But of course, you do require a minimum price for the Americans. It's a fairly simple calculation. You take the US gas price, called Henry Hub, add a liquefaction fee, add the shipping costs, That's the minimum price European gas has to be at to make U.S. LNG exports viable. And that's the one that Gazprom might be able to undermine if it suddenly floods Europe with gas against all expectations. All right, bringing it back to the Middle East. So how important is the Middle East as an alternative gas supplier for Europe? It's the most important region along with the U.S. specifically for LNG. But of course, it's also about oil. Russia supplies a lot of oil to Europe. And there, of course, the Middle East is the most important. So it's right up there. I don't want to over-dramatize it, but it's almost life and death for an alternative. Make no mistake, without Middle East supply, especially LNG from Qatar, this won't work, this plan. This is why the German Vice Chancellor in Economy, Mr. Robert Habeck, was in Qatar, which is unusual. That isn't the usual diplomatic route down as a lot of attention. That is why Qatar achieved the status of major non-NATO ally. Without LNGs from Qatar, these plans won't work. It's as simple as that. You know, I was going to say, hasn't this conflict in Ukraine really shown us how wars impact energy policy? But given your comment, your nice little fact you threw in there about 
The Russian gas supplies continuing and even increasing and through Ukraine. I'm not sure if we need to talk about how also energy policy impacts wars. You know, I'm not sure which side of the coin we need to look at, or maybe we need to look at both. Yeah, I mean, the sort of commodities and geopolitics is a big thing. In fact, the Eurasia Group where I work, it's what I do. And they're very intertwined and we're seeing that now, right? Exactly. A lot of economies, major economies around the world, really rely on commodities for their revenues to finance their military or economy, Russia being the most famous example. But the most advanced economies really rely on affordable and reliable energy imports to fuel their economy. All of the EU is an example. Japan, South Korea, China, they're all gobbled up oil, gas, coal. They need huge numbers of energy to work. And of course, the US is the most famous example traditionally, but they also, of course, have a lot of oil and gas themselves. But war and commodities and energy is a huge subject. And these crises just show, again, that you cannot totally take for granted energy supply from everybody. Because if you don't get on with the government who sells you energy... You're in trouble. I think after the end of the Cold War, people started forgetting that a little bit and just assumed that everything will be lovely. We had a nice run. We did have a nice run, didn't we? Yeah, lovely run. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the last 30 years were great. <laughs> Everyone needs Middle Eastern energy. But is that only the short and medium term? Because the long-term plans for Europe is to move away from fossil fuels, right? Yes. If you're a European politician or a long-term investor and you see sky-high oil, gas and coal prices, and the risk of disruption because of geopolitical trouble, then that the signal that sends you is invest into clean domestic energy resources to cut that dependency on import reliance from potential countries that you might not get on with very well. And of course, this sometimes applies to Middle Eastern countries as well. So this is a problem, and politicians have seen it, investors see it as well. But of course, there's that famous new buzzword, hydrogen and liquid ammonia, where the Middle East can play almost as big a role in the future as it currently is in oil and gas. Aha, so the party might go on a little bit for the Middle East. Yeah, or a new party might emerge. Yeah, exactly, because if you can supply clean hydrogen and ammonia to Europe, that will work wonders as well. And that is the European strategy now, create a hydrogen fuel economy. And the Middle East will play a very important role in that one as well. The Europeans don't like to admit that publicly yet, but without Middle Eastern hydrogen, these grand hydrogen strategies that are popping up from all governments won't work. Is there a way to create a stable world supply of energy? There is one thing that's popping up now, and that's the supply chain diplomacy. This is a new little buzzword or term that's popping up where you say, all right, let's build the future supply chain. So all the new contracts that we sign, long-term contracts, with countries with whom we have a positive, a strong geopolitical strategic alliance, or at least some form of partnership that is doable. Again, this is where the US designation of Qatar as a major non-NATO ally comes in. This is why the Europeans are trying to sign contracts with Australians and Canadians, because they have good relations with them. Of course, the problem is that 20 years ago, this was why the Germans wanted to sign contracts with the Russians, because they wanted to make a geopolitical ally of Russia. And that's, as we now see, catastrophically backfired. But nevertheless, this is the idea now, sign long-term strategic energy and raw material alliances. And it's not just oil and gas. I mean, the critical raw materials developments now for all the raw materials needed for electric vehicles and the likes, it's all based on the same thing, so supply chain diplomacy. All right, now it's time for my signature final question. Are you ready to get out that crystal ball, Henning? You've talked us through what the future in the immediate term might look like. The famous Middle Eastern question, yes. Uh, so, 
I think revenues for oil and gas out of release will remain high for the foreseeable future, even amid the green transition, because as Europe needs to cut itself off Russia, that means they'll buy more from the Middle East, for one thing. Also, if during the green transition, production of oil and gas around the world starts to drop off, that means that the remaining oil and gas demand will be supplied by the most economic producers, and which includes most of the Middle Eastern oil and gas producers. So in that sense, I think there's a couple of years of pretty good revenues coming up politically. Oh boy, I mean, who knows? There are some improving diplomatic ties in the Middle East between everybody. Past sadly has shown that politically things can derail quite fast as well. So in that sense, I'm not quite that sure. Absolutely fabulous chatting with you, Heading. Thanks for coming and sharing your insight. My pleasure, Sammy. Thanks for the invite. Let's also thank our listeners. Thank you guys for joining us. I want to give a shout out. Let me give a shout out for some of our guys on the production team too. Our producer, Hayat Mongodon, and our sound designer, George Ulwir. Can't forget our lead engagement producer, Aya Al-Malik, and our assistant engagement producer, Munira Adosari. Last but definitely not least, our big boss, the executive producer, Omar Saleh. And then there's me, Sami Zaydan, your host. Thanks for joining us. It's bye for now.